Let me start this morning with a couple of examples before we get into the scripture. Uh, imagine, if you will, I'm not sure what the best example of this would be for you, but something that elicits a profound sense of joy or enthusiasm or excitement. These are a couple of examples that came to my mind. Imagine your dad drives home one day and he's driving a brand new, so this is where you fill in the blank. It's a Porsche, a BMW, a Bentley, whatever you consider the, the fanciest, nicest, fastest, whatever kind of automobile. He gets out and he throws you the keys to that car and he says it's yours to use any way you'd like. How do you feel in that moment and what do you say? Or switch gears a little bit. Imagine your dad takes you, again, you'll have to fill in the blank. Apple computer. Run down to Cupertino or, or uh, whatever corporation or business or whatever you think would just reflect the, the neatest thing to run on planet Earth. And he tells you you're the, niece, you're the new CEO or you're the new president or this is his company he's entrusting into your hands and you're going to run it and you're going to enjoy all the perks and that's going to be your baby what do you say, and how do you feel? What's, what's that elicit from us? You could have a totally different example. But the thought would be, I'm gifted something that's sort of mind-blowing, and what do I think about that? How do I interact mentally, emotionally with that? And what's my response? What do I say? God has done more and better than any lesser examples in creating a world of immense beauty, glory, possibilities, and he's turned over the keys of that world to us. He's made us president of his corporation. He's given us the keys to his kingdom. He's told us to oversee his world, enjoy its perks, and give him the glory through it all. We're going to be in Psalm 8 this morning. You can turn there on your app or in your Bible now if you would like. Uh, the best of songs, and this is true generally, this is true in life, this is true in the book of Psalms, this is true in the responses you and I give to other people, sort of the, the words of our heart that flow unbidden, if you will, that we don't even think about, just that response to generosity, to grace, whatever it would be, flows out of the heart. In Psalm 8, David's heart overflows in praise to God for two things. One is just the, the beauty of the creation. So we'll see, he's going to talk about the night sky. He looks up, he sees God's glory in the night sky. So he, he praises God for the glory of God revealed in creation. But the other thing in Psalm 8 is he praises God for God's great grace and condescension in giving this crazy good world to us. He's blown away by both. He looks up and glorifies God. He looks down and glorifies God. We're in the series Like a Tree, and we're working through selected songs in the book of Psalms. Derek Kidner says this. Derek Kidner's a very well-known academic, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. He says this of Psalm 8. This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and grace of God rehearsing who he is and what he's done, and relating us and our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit of mingled joy and awe. And that's key at the end. And that's what you'll see at the beginning and the end of that song. 
mingled with joy and awe. Again, if you think of an example in your life where somebody gives you something you could never get on your own, you could never buy, and they've just dropped it in your lap, that sense of just overwhelming joy and awe. I've been giving something of this magnitude. This is a song, and where we'll wind down on Psalm 8. Um, guys, you know there's kinds of songs in the book of Psalms, so we're calling this a song of praise, and praise is elicited for a couple different reasons. Other songs we specifically say are messianic. So if you read Psalm 110, it's talking specifically about Messiah. This usually isn't listed as messianic specifically, but what you'll see is this. There are a few psalms that have this many and this direct references in the New Testament to Jesus. So we'll wind down, we'll look at Psalm 8, and we'll go to the New Testament and see what Psalm 8 says, how it connects specifically to Jesus, how he is the fulfillment of that ultimately. Song of Praise, uh, we don't know a lot about the setting. It, it's David at his best, though, praising God. It says, um, if you look at your Bible there, the heading... Uh, says to the choir master we've talked about that before this could be to the the levite or the priest who's overseeing the worship of god there in jerusalem could mean to god himself we've got another word on the front end the directions to the choir master as it were according to giddeth what do you think that means i don't know either and, and, and most other people don't know either we guess at these things we know the word giddeth comes from gath which probably sounds familiar because there's a city of the Philistines called Gath. Gath, the word means wine press, but it's not known specifically. What does that mean to the guys leading worship? Don't know, not sure. And it's a Psalm of David, of course. We're going to start, we'll look at part of verse 1, we'll look at the rest of verse 1 and verse 2, then we'll look at the body of the song from there. So starting at verse 1, just that first line David sort of explodes with emotion. He says, O Lord, or O Yahweh, O Jehovah, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, in the scripture, name reflects the person. It's not sort of a digression away. If you say the name of the person, you're talking directly about the person. So David says, God, you are majestic, you're mighty, you're noble, you're splendid. You are Lord. This is an explosion of emotion. He's not so much giving us information. His heart is full. And so the first thing he says is out of his heart is, Lord, you're great, you're cool, you're mighty, you're majestic. It's all I can get out in the moment. This kind of exclamation comes from a heart and a mind overflowing with appreciation, affection, and love. If you go to Psalm 45 later, and I, I, this will be in the book two of psalms i don't know if we'll go through this one or not but psalm 45 uh son, sons of Korah, it's attributed to it says uh <clears throat> my uh, my tongue is the pen of a ready writer my heart overflows with a good theme which i've composed concerning the king he says i've been thinking about something my mind is filled with something my heart is filled with something and it's out of the abundance of the heart and the mind that i'm going to express to you now the glories of the king well that's the thought here he doesn't say that's what's going on he just does it it just happens his heart is full of the glory of god and that's what comes out there's a there's a poem by percy shelley who was in many ways probably a miserable human being but an incredible poet and listen to what he says, this is a comparison, in his poem, To a Skylark. 
He says, Hail to thee, blithe spirit, bird thou never wert, that from heaven or near it pourest thy full heart in profuse strains of unpremeditated art. That's a description of what's going on with David. So Shelley sees the skylark, the bird, going through the heavens, and it's just singing its little heart out. Well, you couldn't stop it. It's not trying to figure this out. It's sort of the glory of the bird flying through the air in the space God gave it to be. And if the bird had joy, this bird has joy. And so it's just doing what it's filled with. It's singing because it's filled with song. And that's what's going on for David at the beginning and the end of this song too. He just overflows with joy and praise to God. He doesn't have to think about it. Doesn't have to think at all about it. There's thoughtfulness certainly behind it because he's going to tell us why in this frame of reference, why he's so enthusiastic about God's praise. So there's that behind it, but he's not working at developing this. His heart is full of this awe and appreciation for who God is and what he's done. And guys, before we go any further, let me ask you this. If somebody sort of pokes you, what comes out? It, what, what is it that if you talk with somebody else that you can't keep in? You know, if, if you're shaken sort of in the emotions and the, the thoughts, the distilled thoughts of your mind and heart, if they come out, what comes out? So you shake David and what comes out is praise for God. He just stands in awe of God and his glory and his grace. And so you shake him and that's what comes out. So others that you interact with regularly, what would they say fills your heart? You know, Scripture's clear. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. What fills our heart? What fills? You know, the Puritans always talked about the affections. What do we love? Because that's usually what we'll talk about. So what fills our heart and our mind? What, what are our affections set on? David in Psalm 8 is this great example that he simply erupts with the affections of his heart and he says, Lord, you are it. You're majestic. You're splendid. Somebody shakes me, that's what comes out. What is true for us? Now, I hope in, in no way, I say this semi-repeatedly, um, I hope you never feel condemned by anything I say or anyone else preaching, teaching, at Lion Lamb says condemned. But if you feel exhorted or encouraged or convicted, that's a good thing. All of which is to say, if we aren't known, and if it's not a regular part of our life that praise for God, awe for God, appreciation for God, is what comes out, if that's not the case for us, it's probably because other things have displaced our affection for God. <clears throat> As Christians, we have the Spirit of Christ, we have the Word of God, we're in the family of God. You see where this goes. If my thoughts and my heart are on God and who He is and what He's given me, that should be a normal overflow from my heart, my affections. If it's not, there's probably a reason for that. And guys, we live in a busy world and there's all kinds of things going on. We can get fearful and worried and you name it. Other things can displace that. We need to be careful of that. I think Psalm 8 is a great box to check to consider what's coming out of me regularly so for david it's praise and if that's not true for us thanksgiving awe glory praise related to god if that's not the case it's good to sit down and, and just ask ourselves the question what is it that i love to talk about 
Have you seen uh, the bumper stickers, Ask Me About My Grandchildren? Well, you know, what, is, what what's fills that person's heart, soul, emotion tank, right? They, this is what they want to talk about. What do we want to talk about? What do we talk about with other people? Shake us up what comes out. For David, it was certainly praise. And hopefully that's the case for us too as life goes along. We'll look at the rest of verse 1. David says, you've set your glory above the heavens. Now he's going to get into the body of this. He's going to talk about the starry night sky. But he says here, you've set your glory above the heavens. What's above the heavens? So think of this for a second. You know, David looks up, by the way, this, this song, I, I think it's hard for us to relate to this song for this reason. Uh, if, how many here live in the city? Yeah, most of us. When you go out and look up at the night sky, what do you see? Not much, right? You can only see the brightest of the stars and you'll see the moon. You know, the moon was full probably a couple nights ago. That's all you see. That's not what David saw. And if you live in other time, if you go back in history before electric, electric lights, if you go back in history, no matter where you lived at night, it was dark, dark, dark. And when you look up at the night sky in very dark places, you see the bejeweled glory of God in ways you simply can't see anymore. We've traded electric lights for God's glory in the night sky. It's a lousy trade. It's one of the reasons why we're right where we should be in town. I'm good with that. But if Mike had his druthers, I'd be out in the country far enough to appreciate the night sky. You know, in the summer, Cygnus is one of the dominant constellations. And if you look up in a dark place, anywhere on the earth, northern hemisphere at least, and you see Cygnus in the summer. Cygnus is flying in the Milky Way. It looks like a river of stars. It's fuzzy going through, what is it, northeast, I think, to southwest. <clears throat> you can't see that now. When David looked up, he saw the glory of God in the night sky. And so we think of the night sky, okay, so go up. How far can we go? So, you know, Hubble, we can look out how many light years. And now... The James Webb, I think, new telescope, you guys see it's up there, it's a million miles away, it's going to orbit the sun, and we're going to look at infrared stuff from who knows how long ago, how far away. David looks at the night sky and he says, your glory is above the heavens. Well, how high are the heavens? You know what David's saying? David's saying the cosmos is not big enough to contain your glory that you look to the end of the created universe and he says that's where God's glory is and then it just keeps going. That God is so magnificent, he's eternal. He's not just in all places, he's beyond place. He's beyond time. So David looks up at the night sky and he says, glorious as the skies are, the, the heavens above us that we can't measure, they're not big enough to contain your glory. They reflect it, they show it, but you're bigger your glory is greater than we can see or determine in the cosmos. That's verse 1b. So he looks up to the heavens and he says, Man, Lord, you're it. And I see your glory in the heavens and beyond the heavens. But then look at verse 2. His gaze now goes from the sky upward, the heavens. Now it comes down to the earth. He looks down to the earth in verse 2 and he says, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy 
and the avenger. Now this is kind of a wonky verse in this song. And translators have difficulty knowing how to translate it, even what words to use, and what it's supposed to mean. So we won't try to solve the riddles of the universe out of Psalm 2 this morning, but we can at least say a couple things. Let me say first, ESV says you've established strength because of your foes. Now when the Jews translated the Hebrew into their Greek Bible, what we call the Septuagint, they translated that word praise. And when you go to the New Testament, as we will in a moment, when you go to the New Testament, they use the Greek translation. We'll see Matthew 21. Jesus is going to quote this psalm about himself. So praise, and I think praise, at least in the way that Jesus uses it in the New Testament, praise makes sense. So what this specifically means entirely, clearly, we, we don't know. you got cries of children in praise, probably, that are going to be attended to by God. God will use the smallest and the weakest of things to defeat his enemies. And I think this is what's going on, at least. David looks up to say God's glory is seen in the heavens, and then he looks down to the smallest, weakest human element on earth, infants and children, to say even their babblings and stuttering words are used to reflect God's glory, and in so doing, silence God's enemies. And that's, that's exactly what you'll see the way it's used in Matthew 21. Jesus quotes this verse, and we'll look at that later. So, opening, and now if you'll go to verses 3 through 8, uh, this is the body, this is David's primary subject. He says, when I look at your heavens, so now we're going to the night sky, the work of your fingers, creation is sort of God's finger painting, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? So you can see here, David looks up to the heavens, there's your glory, but now he looks down to man on the earth and says, man, in comparison, we're just not much, are we? He says, verse 5, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, you've crowned him with glory and honor, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, so that's domestic animals. Also the beasts of the field, that's all the wild animals. The birds of the heavens, there's Shelley Skylark, all the bird life in the skies as well. The fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the sea, the waters of the earth and all life in those waters. David says God has put man, mankind, humanity as dominion over them, as his regents over them. So he's amazed by the lofty beauty of creation on one hand and the very insignificant stature of man in comparison on the other. And no doubt David is thinking, probably been meditating on Genesis 1, we'll read a verse from that in a minute, and the creation story, because that's certainly what he's referencing, creating the wonders of the heavens and the earth and then placing man as his region over all that's on the earth. So his amazement rises to focus on God's glory in the heavens, that's verse 3, and then descends back down to man on earth as God's earthly ruler, that's verse 4. So in comparison to the awesome size and splendor of the sun, the moon, and the stars, how insignificant man appears, and yet part of God's glory is seen in his image bears on earth, exercising lordly benevolent rule over his creation in his name. 
get to verse 5, God has made our race a little lower than the heavenly beings, is the way ESV translates it. Uh, this is another disputed uh, translation. So in the Hebrew, the word for heavenly beings in the English is actually the Hebrew Elohim. It's the plural name for God. In the creation account, it's used 32 times in Genesis 1, alone for God. So why don't they translate it God? Why don't they just say, uh, you made man a little lower than God? Well, here's the problem. Elohim as a term is used not only of God, but it's also used of false gods, angels, and spiritual beings. So they're making a translation determination on which of the meanings make sense in the context. Now, this will come up in Hebrews, which we'll look at again in a minute, which shows, again, that Psalm 8, if you just read Psalm 8 in context, which is what you've always got to do, that's always where we start. But if you stopped there, you wouldn't realize this is specifically about Jesus because it's, this Psalm is just repeated over and over and over in the New Testament, which we'll see in a moment. So, whether this verse means mankind's been created lower than God, everything created is lower than God, or the angels, and angels is what will be quoted in Hebrews, the distinction is that he's not part of the heavenly realm, but of the earthly. And that's not an insult because he's the pinnacle of God's created universe, of the cosmos. Mankind is the pinnacle of that creation. Verse 5 says, Man has been crowned with glory and honor, crowned like a king with glory and honor by God's doing. And then verse 6, he's been given rulership over the rest of God's creation. This is crazy stuff. You know, what was God thinking when he gave you or me the keys to his kingdom, to his cause? What was he thinking? <laughs> he had a good plan for that, right? And that plan will ultimately be fulfilled in Christ, which we'll look at also. I want to say... Uh, couple points of application on this. Uh, COVID aside, Ukraine aside, so take some of the, the current hot plate issues off the table for just a minute. Uh, creation care, creation care, have you guys heard this term? Creation care is the Christian or Christianized term for environmentalism. And this has been coming up in spades in the last couple of decades at least. And creation care is something Christians have been writing about related from Psalm 8. What does our rule and our dominion over this earth physically, what does that look like? And how good a job are we doing or have we done? Or what should we do that we aren't doing? Creation care. Now, at that level, to, say, to hold up Scripture and say, how are we doing to Psalm 8 is a good question. Um, however, there's a lot that's coming out. You know, uh, the church often, maybe more often than not, follows the world. That's the way this works. So if you look at much of what's been written and is being written about creation care, think of our dominion over the earth, is really no more than the philosophy that the atheistic environmentalists have been putting forth. So on one hand, if you say uh, pagans pointed out to Christians the lousy way we've been overseeing God's creation, if we needed to hear that, that would be worth hearing. We should repent and move on and do a better job. But we want to be careful that creation care doesn't just become the world's version of environmentalism. Because for most of the environmentalists, 
Their worldview does not see God at the head of creation and giving mankind dominion over it. Most of what comes out of the world in environmentalism is some form of polytheism, paganism, Mother Earth. Man is not the pinnacle of creation. Man's just one of the bugs that crawls on it. And the earth would be better if we got rid of a bunch of human bugs so the earth could be healthier. So we want to be careful as we read even Christians on this notion of creation care and Psalm 8 and dominion and rule that we're keeping our mind in the way God meant for this to be. The earth isn't here. The earth is here for our benefit. You remember Jesus says Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The earth was made for us. The earth is not preeminent. Mankind on earth is preeminent. This earth will not survive as it is. You and I will in glorified means, ways, in a new heaven and new earth that has some kind of continuity with this one, just like your physical body will have continuity in the new heavens and new earth in your perfected state, but it won't be as it is. So as we're reading, even Christians on this notion, we need to be careful. The point David makes isn't to make man standing something insignificant, but to magnify God's grace in giving this creature God's authority to rule in his stead over God's glorious creation. That's Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. And you can see David's gears turning from this verse over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man is the last creative act of God because he is the pinnacle of creation. He's the primary end to which all of creation was aimed. The earth is his home. We're made for the earth, but the earth is not superior to us. It's, what, it's where the place God has put us interact with him so let me ask you how do you guys just objectively broadly how do you think humankind mankind broadly has done as ruler and dominion over the earth how do you think we've done you know it's noble things to do things like farming and ranching and fishing and growing crops and building structures discovering the uses God has built into creation. Think about Adam and Eve. When they were kicked out of the garden, guys, they're two naked people on the earth, right? They got nothing. And look at where we're at today. You, you got satellites in space. You've got computers. You've got crazy good foods. You've got how, all the potential that you see on the earth. It was there from the beginning because God put it there. And so all the ways in which man discovers Scripture talks about it's the glory, I'll forget this from Proverbs, it's the glory of God maybe to hide it and the glory of kings to find out what God has done, something along that line. So mankind given dominion, you, you discover all this stuff God built into the world for us to use and enjoy, all of which is great. But also, how have we done with that? So here's just some big thoughts I had. In many ways, I think our efforts have been rubbish, um, literally and otherwise. So pollution of land, water, and air. Now some of this is unintentional, right? We do things and we don't realize the consequences that are going to come sometimes. But some of it is because we've been intentional about certain things and we didn't care about keeping things clean. Uh, the extinction of animal species created by God 
when God finished creation with all the animal life forms on the earth, he said, it's good, it's very good. You know, in the flood, God basically drowns out, you know, where are the dinosaurs? We know they were here. We've got their fossils. You know, but the earth's different after the flood, isn't it? The atmosphere is different. People don't live as long. Some animals, they, they just don't survive well after the flood. And we say, well, that's on God. But the animal forms that were here, those were here by God. They're very good. And humanity can't afford to simply disregard the impact we have on other critters God put on the earth that we're meant to benevolently rule over. There's all kinds of examples of this, guys. And we don't sacrifice animals for humans. Am I saying? We don't sacrifice humans. Sorry, switch it. Reverse that. This is a Willy Wonka moment. Stop, reverse. We don't sacrifice humanity for animals. Humanity are the ones that rule over the animals. We don't get that backwards. But it's only appropriate that as housing developments go out, guys, you know, the Alaskan pipeline, they, they realized caribou come through here. Can they get through? You know, the pipelines elevate in these areas for the caribou herds to go through. That's appropriate. Because you, you'll wipe out species. We have wiped out species. That's not good. I don't think that's good care. That's not good dominion. That's not good rule. There may be some unintended consequences we can't reverse, but mankind, humans, should be aware of the impact we have on the world around us as we expand, as we build, as we put roadways in, etc. At the destruction of God's other earthly image bearers in wars, abortions, and murders, this is not good care, not only of the earth, but of fellow image bearers, on the other side of that, the elevation of the creation to the status of creator, or we worship the creator, or excuse me, the creature. Think of Romans 1. That's the flip side of this. So we get this wrong in all kinds of ways. And one of the reasons, and it's only one, and it's mentioned very briefly, so I don't want to make too much of it, but it's there. One of the reasons for God's judgment in the coming tribulation period is mankind's abuse of his authority over creation. This is Revelation 11, 16 through 18. The 24 elders in heaven are speaking, and they say in part this, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. You've taken your great power and begun to reign. In his judgments on the earth, he's already begun to institute his kingdom reign during the tribulation. The time has come for, one, rewarding your servants, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And in the Greek, that means destroying the destroyers of the earth. One of the reasons for God's judgment in the tribulation is the way mankind has abused dominion over the physical earth he's given us to see, to rule over. Also, one of the reasons for Jesus' coming millennial kingdom is to display what God had in mind when he put the first Adam in charge of his creation. Now, this is cheating a little bit. But when Jesus comes back and sets up his millennial reign, a thousand-year reign, the, some of the effects of the curse and the fall, they're mitigated or they're lessened. So Jesus will have an advantage we don't have today, okay? But, but given that, these are some of the descriptions that attend Jesus' benevolent rule as the Son of Man, as the key man on the earth when he's reigning here on the earth, even not the new heavens and new earth, this earth. Uh, fresh water in abundance, Ezekiel 47. 
Uh, the desert becomes a place of flowers blooming. That's true in some places anyway, but this will be true dominantly so under Jesus, Isaiah 35. Uh, animals at peace with each other, the lion and the lamb lie down together, Isaiah 11. There's nothing hurtful on the earth under Jesus' reign. He's careful about that, Isaiah 11. And then the knowledge of God covers the earth, Habakkuk 2, as the waters cover the sea. It'll be a very, very different life experience when Jesus rules the earth. So David's, David looks up, sees God's glory, looks down, sees our insignificance, and yet God has given us dominion and rule over his created universe, and he praises God for that too, so much that he closes, verse 9, on the same way he started, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to take the balance of the time to see how the New Testament treats this song in relation to Jesus. So he is the, clearly the ultimate theme and fulfillment of Psalm 8. Verse 1, the majesty of God's name. How majestic is your name. How majestic are you has now been replaced, if you will, with the person, work, and name of Jesus. We aren't usually praying today to Yahweh, though we can, but today we're approaching the Father in the name of the Son. So Yahweh, which means I am of the Old Testament. So when God introduces himself by his personal name to his covenant people, he says, I'm the eternally existent one. I'm the one there is and there is no other. Great. How does he introduce himself today through the Son? Jesus means God saves. That's the new name that we approach God through. Jesus, Yeshua, Yesu. Listen to this from Philippians 2, 9 through 11. God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Where David starts with, O Yahweh, how great is your name in all the earth, O eternally existent one. As Christians today, we approach the Father in the name of the Son. God has revealed himself fully to us today in the person, the work, and the name of Jesus. So Jesus is the fulfillment, if you will, of Psalm 8, verse 1. If you look at verse 2, this is the verse Jesus quoted in Matthew 21, verses 15 and 16. So on Palm Sunday, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he's hailed as the Messiah, and they're throwing their stuff down on the street in front of him, and some people are coming with him from the Mount of Olives, other people come out from Jerusalem, this is, this is Jerusalem's reception of their king. And they're saying, he is the Messiah. And you remember, he comes in and he goes to the temple. He kicks out the money changers. And everybody that comes in, he heals. That's what's going on when this occurs. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, or save now, to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read, have you never read Psalm 8, verse 2? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus takes Psalm 8, verse 2, and he applies it to himself. And if you go back and think about that, how does that affect his enemies? The children's praise to Jesus acknowledges God's glory in Jesus, and it puts down, if you will, the enemies of God who in this passage are the religious leaders. 
they're put off because the children know something that the religious leaders don't. They know that Psalm 8 verse 2 is applied to Jesus and the religious leaders do not. They were actually enemies of God. But Jesus applies that to himself. Uh, if you look at verse 4, David used a title that's called the Son of Man. In Scripture, especially the Old Testament, if you see a phrase, the son of something, the son of something generic, or it could be the son of an individual, it identifies a person with either that former person, a forebear, let's say, but it could also be descriptive that this person belongs to that group. So if you talked about an evil or a wicked man in the Old Testament, you might say he's a son of Belial. He's a son of worthlessness. That's not literally who his father is, his parentage. It's what's descriptive of him generally. He's a son of worthlessness. Well, Jesus takes up in the New Testament that phrase from Psalm 8, the son of man. Now, if you do a search in the Old Testament, it's used a ton. And Ezekiel, in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, God calls Ezekiel all the time son of man. You're a representative. But ultimately, Jesus takes this description, this term, son of man, to himself. Sorry for this, but I'll just throw it out there so you've seen it. Uh, Daniel 7.13, in this glorious vision Daniel has, where the Messiah is going to the Ancient of Days to receive the kingdom, the one going to the Ancient of Days is the son of man. So 82 times in the gospel, son of man is applied to Jesus. He is the Son of Man. He is the key representative. Just like the Son of David means he's the Messiah. Well, the Son of Man, he is the one that will receive the kingdom, and he's doing so as the key or the new representative of mankind, of God's image bearers on the earth. So ultimately, Son of Man refers to Jesus as well. If you look at verses 5 and 6, uh, that phrase, you remember we said, lower than the angels and all things would be put under his feet. Uh, there's three passages that, in which this is specifically referenced out of Psalm 8. I'll go through these briefly. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. Speaking here of Jesus' resurrection, the text says, He's been elevated far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that's named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And He, God, put all things in subjection under His feet. So you know, in Psalm 8, he is mankind broadly. But in Ephesians 1, he is Jesus specifically, particularly. The Father has put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Psalm 8 applied specifically and directly to Jesus. If you go to Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, I won't read all this, but I love this, by the way. If you're talking to someone and you've, where you forget where something's at, it's okay. Because biblical writers did too. So listen to this in Hebrews 2, verse 6. It's been testified somewhere. <laughs> somewhere the Bible says this. I have no idea where. This is the guy writing the Bible. You read. This is God's word. It's been testified somewhere. Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? And go down, he says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, to him here is Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. So Jesus doesn't look like he's in control of everything yet. But we do see him who for a little while was, 
made lower than the angels. So there again, mankind broadly in Psalm 8, specific to Jesus now, made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. That's verse 5, Psalm 8. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Applied to Jesus specifically. And last one, and this is sort of the money one. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll sort of skip through verses 22 through 28. He must reign, Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Remember, all creation has to be under man's feet. Jesus is the son of man, under his feet. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. That's Psalm 8. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Guys, this is the thing. What he's describing here in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is the consummation of the age. Psalm 8 is ultimately talking about the consummation of the age. So this is what we get. David speaks of man broadly, but we come in and we realize Jesus comes in, Jesus, God the Son, second person of the Trinity, comes down, puts on our humanity so that he can represent us, right? And so he's our representative in living a righteous life under God, and then he's our representative in bearing our sins on the cross. We call that substitutionary atonement. And then he's our representative in rising from the dead, never to die again, he's become the the start, the progenitor of a new race of mankind in his resurrection. So he's in heaven now, but all things, Scripture says, have not been subjected to him. He's not in dominion yet. But when he comes back, what does he do? Well, in his millennial reign, he rules over the earth as it is. He puts down all, all rebellion in every form. And then there's a great uprising at the end that he allows. And then this earth age is over and you're into a new heavens and new earth. And so here's the picture. Adam and Eve, mankind, humankind, who blew it in Genesis 3, and we've been blowing it ever since, Jesus comes in as our representative, takes our sin on himself on the cross, rises for our justification, seated in glory to heaven today. He'll come back. He'll rule over the earth and then he'll institute a new heavens and new earth so that God's representative on earth at the end of 1 Corinthians 15 is going to turn around and he's going to give the kingdom that was given to him back to God as it should have been all along. So Psalm 8 in pointing out Jesus specifically is pointing to the big, big picture, the eternal picture, the consummation of the ages. That in Jesus, our humanity has been renewed. And in Jesus, yeah, we're going to rule with him over a new heaven and new earth. So ultimately, Psalm 8 is all about Jesus. And in being all about Jesus, it's telling us there's a new heaven and there's there's a new earth coming. And it'll be glorious. It'll be perfect. No sin, no death, no tears. You know, I love this. And the, the only question is, will we be there? And I would pointedly say this, is Christ your Savior? Do you know that whether he comes and calls for us today or if you live a long life and die, do you know you belong to Christ and you're going to heaven? Is there anything that separates you from Christ? Because if there is, get rid of it, repent, believe in Jesus, be saved and be ready for him and be ready for a new heaven and a new earth. He's come down as one of us to, to bring, to redeem humanity. And when he does, it would be like Junior driving the car back home 
and it's spotless and it's clean and he gives the keys back to dad and he says, it's been a great ride, thank you. Or he comes at the end of his, uh, whatever, financial season and he gives the books to dad to show this is what I did with your kingdom. This is the profit we made. This is how we ran your company, dad. Here it is, it's yours. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what we look forward to. So Psalm 8, we should stand in awe of God as we observe his glories, and I hope we do. I hope, I hope when you look out or you drive through the Flint Hills or you see the rain and the snow coming down, God's glory is reflected in everything in his creation. I hope we take that into account. We should remember that God uses the smallest and the weakest of us to display his greater glory. Guys, all of us, all of us exercise dominion in some realm on this earth. If it's our own health and body, we're, we're exercising dominion. If it's a household, if when I mow my yard, what am I doing? I'm exercising dominion. When I repair my house, I'm exercising dominion. I'm caring for that on the earth which God gave me to care for. We all have spheres of influence, and this should challenge us to ask ourselves, am I being the kind of steward? Am I exercising rule and dominion in the spheres of influence I have in life in a way that glorifies God? Because I should be. Psalm 8 calls me to that. Ultimately, we wait for Jesus uh, to come back and make all this right. Clean things up. We'll be cleaned up. That'll be a good day. We'll stand if you would, and we will pray. We've been doing this on this, this series. Uh, instead of reading a scripture text, we're reading a prayer that comes from the song that we've been in. It's one of the ways that we can aptly apply scripture. So if this represents your heart and your desires as well, please pray with me now. Father, we stand in awe of you. We love you and delight in the creation you've made for us, a creation which reflects your glory, though it cannot contain it. Thank you for the privilege of representing your interests on the earth. Help us to do so wisely, to reflect your priorities, till Jesus comes and makes this earth his kingdom.